I know that most of you probably understand or know what a paradox is. A paradox would be that type of thing. It's a seemingly absurd or um, self-contradictory statement that when you open it up a little bit more or you let it play out or you study it a little bit more, it actually can make sense. And it actually works out in the end. Now, I'm going to give you an example um, this morning of one that's, that's personal, but um, it's not the best example, but I'm pretty proud of it. So I'm going to brag a little bit um, this morning on myself. If n- no one, I'll put it this way, I'll start it like this. No one has ever accused me of being a mechanic. I cannot fix anything when it comes to engines or my vehicles or anything like that. If mechanic and Devin is ever used in the same sentence, there's usually um, calling that's involved in that. Devin called a mechanic and set up an appointment for his car. Um, That type of thing is how it usually goes. But we drive a 2005 Expedition and... Um, It has 150,000 miles on it. And the reason we drive that is because we're in the middle of a building campaign at my church that I go to. And we need that truck to last us another year um, so that we can continue to give to that. So I'm trying my best to keep these things going as long as I can. And so I decided this week to try, this weekend, to try and fix something on my own. And it worked. Um, I did it. I did it. I know. I'm excited. So the paradox and mechanic and Devin, you know, it's, it's, there's proof. I've got a working truck that works better now than it did before um, because I did some work on it. So there's something to that. But let me give you some better ones. All right. You know these. You know these. Slow and steady wins the race. It doesn't make sense until you read the story of the tortoise and the hare, and you're like, okay, slow and steady can win the race. Um, It does up front, it doesn't add up. Less is more. You've probably heard that before as well, and sometimes less can actually equal more. Um, To bring peace, sometimes there has to be war. Sometimes in order to get along with your spouse, you have to go through some arguments to understand each other. Am I right? It it happens that way. Or how about this one? We've learned this one from a favorite movie of mine, in order to turn right, you have to go left. Sorry, to, to turn right, to go left. I'm saying it wrong. In order to go left, sometimes you have to turn right. Here it is. Watch this. The oil that flows. I'll keep an eye on them. Well, thanks, Doc. I've been feeling a cork low. This ain't asphalt, son. This is dirt. Oh, great. What do you want? You here to gloat? You don't have three-wheel brakes, so you've got to pitch it hard, break it loose, and and just drive it with the throttle. Give it too much, you'll be out of the dirt and into the tulips. So you're a judge, a doctor, and a racing expert. I'll put it simple. If you're going hard enough left, you'll find yourself turning right. Oh, right. That makes perfect sense. Turn right to go left. Yes! Thank you! Or should I say no thank you? Because in opposite world, maybe that really means thank you! Crazy grandpa car. What an idiot! (laughs) Turn right to go left.
Turn right to go left, to paradox, right? If you've never seen that movie and you don't have kids, I'd still recommend it. It's still a good show. Um, it's better with kids. But um, at, at the same time, we learn at the end of the movie that he figures it out. And sometimes that paradox actually does make sense when you play it through and put it in the right situation. So we learn that in Scripture as well. There's several things throughout Scripture. Turn the other cheek. It doesn't make sense up front, but yet when you play it out, it, it works. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. It can't be. If it's a burden, it's heavy. Why can't it be light? Um, in order to be great, you have to be humble. And Jesus teaches us humility. Strength comes through our weakness. Or in order to live, you have to die. It, things that seem backwards, but when you play it through, it works. So to understand paradox, especially through Scripture, it's great to have a basic understanding or an understanding of the basics, the core of what we're trying to get to and understand. Last week I introduced you to or reminded you of several um, things that will help, good resources for you, and this is one of them. Um, I introduced it last week. This is a book called Core 52. It was written by a friend of the church's, um, Mark Moore, and he has done a great job. And his concept was to take 52 of the core verses throughout Scripture, and he says if you can understand these 52 verses Then the rest of scripture, when you read it, you can apply back to it and it'll help you understand the bigger picture. Um, So I did it. So every week there's a new verse per week. So one year study for you, but I'll encourage you if it takes you two years to get through a one year study, that's awesome. It still works. It's still good. So um, we sold out of them last week. So third hour, third hour, um, some of them didn't get them. We ordered some more there in the lobby. I'd recommend um, if you're looking for something like this, pick one of these up. Um, it's a great resource for you to understand the core of Scripture. And then there were some others. I introduced you to, reminded you of the Bible app. If you don't have this on your phone, get this on your phone. It's the one that looks like this, um, the little image on there. Um, I actually heard about somebody recently that said I started running and found out that the Bible app plays audio. So you can plug it in and listen um, to it as well. Crestview, even every week we have on the events, um, you can find the events, we're on there and you can follow what we're doing every week um, through this Bible app. It's a good resource. Right now, media, kind of the Christian Netflix, there's tons of videos on this. Crestview has a subscription and then we offer it free to you. So you can jump on to this website and you can download it to different um, avenues on your computer, your Roku, your Apple TV, whatever it is, you can find this on there. Jared Guerin, one of our associate pastors, was actually talking to our sales rep in the last few weeks and he said Crestview is amazing for the size of church we are, how much it gets used through our um, subscription. He says it's great. So good job. You guys are doing great. Our rooted classes, we've got four groups that started last week and it's not too late. If you want to jump in, you can come back this afternoon um, and join one of our rooted groups. We've got a good group of people going through it this time. And it helps create um, a foundation. It's going to create a foundation when you walk through some things that will help you with your core beliefs and understanding so that when you grow as a Christ follower, you get there. So this is where we're at on Sunday mornings then. This is why we're doing this. The Gospels. So we're walking through the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And trying to understand that these four books of the Bible help us understand the complete Bible. So the whole Old Testament isn't just some old teachings or laws. It actually tells a story leading up to the Gospels, the story of Jesus. The rest of the New Testament points back to the Gospels and what is taught throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They tell one story of Jesus from four different viewpoints, and they don't contradict each other. 
It's an amazing setup and what Christ has done through this, what God has done in Scripture to see these as the core. Four complementary accounts of Jesus that help us take a deeper, um, clear look at the most unique figure in human history, Jesus. So last week was Matthew, and Matthew taught us about Jesus, and he said that Jesus was the king of the Jews. That was the theme. That's what we got out of Matthew. Matthew was a traitor, really, to the Jews, became a tax collector, and they hated him for this. But yet Jesus comes along, and he calls Matthew to be a follower of his, to be a disciple. And here's the concept and idea. If Jesus can call Matthew to be a follower of his, man, he can call you. It doesn't matter what you've done. Your friends as well. It ends with this thing called the Great Commission. And the commission is for us to go tell someone else about Jesus. To keep telling this good news story, the gospel story, to someone else. Because if he can save Matthew, he can save any of your friends. So it's up to us to make sure that they know and they study. So here we are. This week we're in Mark. Um, the, The Gospel of Mark. If you have your Bibles, your phones, get to the Gospel of Mark. And I want to tell you, These sermons, through this series of sermons, is going to be more educational. I'm going to give you some more details than I usually do, try and unpack it a little bit so you have an understanding of where this is coming from. So Mark, let's look at Mark the person, and it's a very short list. There's not much that we know about this guy. But in the Jewish circles, his name was John. He went by John when he was around the Jews, and the Gentiles, he was known by Mark. So if you ever are reading through the Gospels and you see John Mark put together, it's this guy, the guy that wrote the Gospel of Mark. Um, He was not one of the 12 disciples, though. I don't know if maybe you've had the thought that the four Gospels came from four of the 12 disciples. It is not. Mark was not a disciple of Jesus, or at least one of the, the original 12 He got most of his information from Peter. We know that he and Peter were good buddies. So here's the way I see it breaking down. Peter was one of the disciples, and he would spend some time with Jesus, and then he would hook up with Mark, and he would tell stories about what happened. Because Mark wasn't there. He wasn't an eyewitness for everything. And Mark would probably look back at Peter and say, that's amazing. Are you writing this stuff down? Well, Peter wasn't. And he'd probably say, no, I'm not. I, I, don't, I don't journal. I don't do that, right? That's not me. Mark is probably thinking, somebody has to write this stuff down. So Mark started to write down the stories that Peter was telling him about Jesus. And then he became good friends with Paul, the Apostle Paul. And he went on a missionary journey with Paul. The first one that Paul went out on to plant churches and start churches and tell people about Jesus. Mark was a part of this journey. And he was out with him. So let's look at the book. Okay, now we get to the gospel. That's the person that's about as much as we know about Mark. The book itself is the shortest of the four gospels. It's short and sweet to the point, crisp fast moving. You're going to see a theme when you read through Mark. He uses the word immediately a lot. It's like immediately they went and did this and immediately this happened. And he's always on the go saying, we got to keep moving. This is a fast moving thing. Um, And he keeps pushing us through. Um, Probably the first gospel that was written. And the reason we think this is many theologians have done some research and studied and thought that Mark wrote his first and then Matthew and Luke actually used Mark's um, book as their starting point, as a resource for them. And so they were reading you know, what Mark wrote, and they said, oh, this is great. But I remember the story, and they elaborate on it. They tell a little bit more than Mark did, because he's short and sweet and to the point. 
the others, Matthew and Luke, tell a little bit more of the story, but they use him to start with. Um, Mark does not give the genealogy of Jesus. He doesn't take the time to go back in history and say, where's the, the lineage of Jesus? Where did Jesus come from? He starts with John the Baptist. John the Baptist came telling us about Jesus, and then Jesus jumps in, gets baptized, and it's the ministry of Jesus, chapter one. I mean, he jumps right into it. And he writes to the Christians in Rome. So this movement has started, this Christ movement, Christ followers, and there are a few of them in Rome. And Mark is saying, you guys need to know about him. I'm going to give you some resources and some help. And he writes his book to the Christians living undercover in Rome. Now the theme is this. The theme of the book is a paradox. If you were to read through Mark, you're going to see different things that come up. And it's this concept or idea that what is stated up, up front doesn't make sense, but it plays out well. And it comes around to make a great conclusion. So here's one of the themes, a victorious servant. Well, how can a servant be victorious? It doesn't make sense. But Jesus comes as a servant, and he ends up victorious. To be first, you have to be a servant, is what Jesus would teach. And Mark walks through that with us. A suffering king. This is something that you see throughout the book of Mark. A king doesn't suffer. A king sits on the throne, and everybody works for him. But Jesus says, no, I'm going to suffer and yet still be the king. And the paradox and how that plays out, you see throughout the book. Okay, last week I also introduced you to um, a great resource called The Bible Project. And if you search this online, make sure you type in the, the Bible Project, and you'll find this website and many of the videos, maybe even on YouTube. This is the beginning of the one on the book of Mark. Let's watch the beginning of this. It's one of the first accounts of the life of Jesus, and our earliest historical traditions link this book to a Christian scribe named Mark, or John Mark. He was a co-worker with Paul and a close partner with Peter. And in fact, an ancient church historian named Papias, he recalls that Mark had collected all of the eyewitness accounts and memories of Peter and then shaped them into this account. But Mark didn't just randomly throw the pieces together. He's carefully designed the story of Jesus. In the first line of the book, Mark makes this claim about Jesus. It's the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, what's interesting is that this is the only time Mark is going to tell you what he thinks. For the rest of the book, he's going to influence you by simply putting Jesus' actions and words in front of you and showing you how other people react to him. Now, Mark's designed the story of Jesus as a drama with three acts. The first one set in Galilee, the third one is set in Jerusalem, and the second act shows Jesus on the way from one place to the other. And each of the acts focuses on repeated theme. So in Act 1, everybody's blown away by Jesus and they're wondering, who is this Jesus? In Act 2, it's the disciples who are struggling to understand what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. And then in Act 3, we watch the surprising paradox of how Jesus becomes the Messianic King. Let's just dive in and you'll see how it unfolds. All right, so if you're like me, you want to watch the rest of that. You can definitely jump online and watch it. I usually have to watch it three or four times to catch everything that you're trying to teach um, in it. It is a great resource. But let's, let's break it down just like that. And let's walk through the book of Mark together and see his theme. And the first question is this, who is this Jesus? People were asking that because Jesus was doing things in front of them that it was like a paradox. It was like, if this is the Messiah, what, why is he doing this? 
Because the Jewish people were expecting a warrior king. They wanted somebody to come in and rally an army and take on Rome and conquer Rome and the government and wipe out the government of Rome so that they could have rule and reign again. And yet Jesus comes along as a humble servant and starts to heal people and forgive people. And throughout the book, you're going to see this more than any of the other Gospels. Uh, Mark does this. He, he makes sure th- that we understand that when Jesus healed somebody, if Jesus was to heal them or forgive them or feed them, he would tell them, don't go tell anybody. Keep it a secret for now. And we see this. Jesus even says at one time, it's not yet my time. It's not time for everyone to know yet who I am. And maybe because they would misunderstand, because a paradox hasn't been unpacked yet. So it's just confusing that this is what the Messiah is doing, that he's not taking on Rome, he's healing people and feeding people. And maybe it's because also he didn't want people coming to him just for food. I mean, if somebody feeds you and they'll keep feeding you, you'll keep coming back, right? And so that's what you want. And so he's afraid that people would just come for healing or just come for food and miss the bigger picture that he is the Messiah and he's trying to change their lives for eternity, not just the here and now or to overthrow Rome. It's bigger than that. And yes, he does those things. He heals, he feeds, he forgives people, um, but that's not the Messiah they were looking for. And so everyone got confused. They were confused. Why is he doing this, telling us not to do? I think Jesus should do this. And so there were people that were approaching him saying, no, you have to do this. If this is it, then you've got to go and trying to tell Jesus what he should be doing instead of letting Jesus run with it. Now, this is where I see it play out. This is how I can understand this the best. Um, Have you ever sat at a football game in the stands and listened to the guys around you yell at either the refs or the coaches? A couple weeks ago, we were at the K-State game, and we were sitting in the upper deck. I mean, we weren't even close to the sidelines. We were way up high on the other side of the field, and there were guys around us yelling at the coaches for K-State, saying, you should do this, you should do that. How come you're... I'm like, um, number one, they can't hear you, um, is what I'm thinking, right? And two, they're not going to listen to you anyway. Um, You're not on the coaching staff, so it doesn't matter. But we all like to do this at times. We think we know what's best. We think we've got a good concept and understanding, and we might even do it at home, you know, yelling at the TV, knowing that no one can hear us or understand us, but yet we still want to do that. And this was going on with Jesus. So Mark moves from the crowd to his disciples and tries to get a little more personal with them. So it would be like this, understand it, right? No good coach, if it was fourth and short, fourth down and just a yard is going to take a pull from the crowd of whether they should go for it or not. You know, he's not going to say, all right, you know, get on the loudspeaker. Anybody think we should go for it or should we punt or what should we do? He's not going to ask the crowd for assistance. But yet, you better have an understanding that his coaching staff and his team, that they're thinking together, that they know what they're doing together because they're the team. They make it work. So Jesus now is moving away from the crowd saying, I'm not going to follow what the crowd is teaching me or trying to tell me to do. I know what I'm going to do, but I've got to get my disciples on the same page. We've got to work together as a team. So we move into this next section with the disciples. What does it really mean to be the Messiah? So he's working with these guys to try and have them understand this paradox. And he tries three different times. Three times. The first one happens in Mark chapter 8. If you're there, flip over Mark chapter 8. Towards the end of that chapter, Jesus sets down with his disciples. I love teaching this lesson. And he asks them the question, 
who do people say that I am? And they were all responding. Well, some say you're this, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're a prophet that's returned. And then he gets personal and he looks at each one of them and says, but who do you say I am? Because that's the important question. It doesn't matter what other people say about Jesus. Now it's the team. Who do you say I am? And Peter steps up and he says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. You're, you're going to hear that here at Crestview when we do baptisms. That's often what we say. We ask the person, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God? That's Peter's confession of faith. And then we make it personal. Is he your Lord and Savior? Who do you say that I am? Peter said that and he was like, that's great. And now Jesus follows it up and says, and now I must suffer and die. And Peter pulls him off to the side and he says, Jesus, I just told you, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Don't say you're going to suffer and die. Jesus says, actually, he looks back at me and says, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> right? Don't tempt me to, to do this. I have to suffer and die. And he didn't get it. It was missed by the disciples. The paradox wasn't there yet. Mark chapter 9, he does it again. Late in the chapter, there's a story where he tells them again that he's going to suffer, that he's going to die, they're going to arrest him, um, that he's going to be crucified. And they respond by this. Get this, Jesus just says, guys, I'm going to die. And they respond by saying, well then, um, tell us, out of the 12 of us, who's the best? Can you give us that? Who, we, we're, it's kind of like competition. A bunch of guys, right? They want to know who is the best among the disciples. And Jesus told them that if you want to be first, you have to be a servant. And they weren't getting it. The paradox was still lost on them. Again, in Mark chapter 10, Jesus tells them, we're getting ready to go into Jerusalem. We're headed to Jerusalem. And I'm going to be arrested, and they're going to crucify me. And James and John come to Jesus, and they say, okay, I, okay. You're telling us this, but when we get into the kingdom, can one of us sit on your right and one of us on your left? This is going to be great. We're, we're, going to, we're going to be the best for you when we get to the kingdom. And Jesus says, guys, I don't even think you can hang with me much longer. Can you even follow me to where I'm going? And he concludes it with this. I'm one of the, the key verses in all of Mark. Chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that's the paradox. Does a king serve? Does a king die in order to advance his kingdom? It doesn't make sense, but this was what Mark was trying to teach us. Um, and they didn't get it. They couldn't handle it. They couldn't wrap their heads around it, at least at this point, until Jesus finally answers the question for them by proving that this can be true. I've got proof that I can work on a vehicle and it's going to still run when I'm done. There's a better running truck in our parking lot here this morning because I did some mechanic work on it. Um, there's proof that it's there. Jesus now is going to prove that he's a victorious servant, that he is a suffering king, and he can still be the king even though he has to suffer. He says, I'll show you how this works. And he rides into Jerusalem that we know it as a triumphal entry. It was a parade that they put on for Jesus and they were praising him and calling him the Messiah as he came in. Then he goes to the temple and he cleans house. He kicks out all the evildoers that are in the temple. 
and says you can't be leading this way and earning money by what's happening with the sacrifices. He confronts the religious leaders. He tells them about the destruction of the temple and how it's going to be rebuilt in three days. But he's talking about himself when he's doing that. Then there's the last supper that he sets down with his disciples and eats with them and tells them um, about his crucifixion. And then there's the trial and the crucifixion. And then we get to this point. This is the craziest part of Mark. This is, I love this stuff in scripture. We get to the very end of Mark, and this is what happens. It's the crazy ending. So if you're there, I want you to flip over Mark chapter 16, the very last chapter, and I'm going to start reading in verse 6 of chapter 16. Right. There were some ladies after Jesus died, they buried him. A couple days later, some ladies went to the tomb to put some um, oils on him to prepare his body for that burial. And when they got there, it says, um, they saw somebody, an angel that was sitting there. And he says, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter, now they're telling them to go tell. Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and they fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Now it didn't last very long. They ended up telling people. But this is how the book of Mark ends. It's kind of a crazy ending that it just abruptly, and this is Mark, though, how he writes, that it just stops right there. There's got to be more to the story, right? What happens? Well, in your Bibles, if you have them open, or even your phones, if you've got them open, there's a few more verses. But before those verses come, it says some of the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 16, 9 through 20. So these verses 9 through 20, these 11 verses weren't in the original manuscript. The original, some of the earliest manuscripts that we have. Um, There's many reasons for that. Some say it just got lost. Um, Some manuscripts had it, and so they added it later. Some thought we need to complete the story of Mark, so somebody wrote a little bit more just to complete the story, because it ended too quickly. But there's reasons against it as well. Why these verses have that little note there, just to make sure you know it might not really fit, but here it is. Um, It was um, not in some of the original manuscripts, but in some of them it was. And it doesn't fit the style of Mark. There's something about those last few verses that just say, I don't think Mark wrote this. Something is up with this one. I like actually how um, the Bible Project explains this and unpacks it for us. So let's go to the end of this video and watch the end of it as they unpack it. After this, Jesus' body is placed in a tomb. And on the first day of the new week, two women from his disciples come to the tomb and they discover that the tomb is empty. The stone's rolled away. And an angelic man informs them that Jesus isn't here, that he's risen from the dead. And so he orders them to go and tell this good news to the other disciples that Jesus is alive, that he'll meet them back up in Galilee. And the women, they're freaked out. Mark says that they fled from the tomb in terror, telling no one, for they were afraid. And that's how the book ends, with Jesus' disciples showing the same kind of fear and confusion that concluded Acts 2 and 1. 
Now, if you look in your Bible, you'll see that the Gospel of Mark has more to its ending, where Jesus appears, he speaks to his disciples, but there's also a note there telling you that that ending is not part of the original book, that it's only found in later, less reliable manuscripts. Now, it's possible that the original ending got lost, or that Mark actually never finished writing his account, but it's more likely that this abrupt ending is intentional to make a point. The entire story has focused on the shocking claim that puzzled Jesus' disciples from beginning to end, that it's the suffering, crucified, and risen Jesus who's the Messiah, the Son of God, that God's love and upside-down kingdom were revealed as Jesus died for the sins of the world. And so this story ends without closure, and it forces you, the reader, to grapple with this very strange and scandalous claim about Jesus. And are you going to run away like the disciples? Or are you going to recognize Jesus as your king and go and tell the good news? And only you can answer that question. And that's what the Gospel of Mark is all about. So whether that ending should be there or not, in my opinion, really doesn't matter. It doesn't change the story. What's written there doesn't um, confuse anything or throw anything um, out of the normal for what we read. It doesn't change the story at all. Um, So whether it's there or not doesn't matter. I actually like seeing it both ways. Okay, it completes the story, but what if it did end right there? What if that was the ending? That, That means everything that Mark wrote actually ended about the same. It ended with confusion among the crowd. The crowd was confused about this Jesus. It ended with confusion with the disciples. They still weren't sure, and now it ends... And there might be some confusion for you, or at least a pointed question to you, who is this Jesus? And you have to decide, what do you do with him? Now, what do you do with these claims? This paradox that has been played out, when Jesus plays it out and it actually does make sense in the end, when Jesus says, yeah, I know it didn't make sense before, but now when I do this for you, do you see how the closure happens? Now you have to decide. What do you do with this story of this man who made these claims to be the son of God? He's either a lunatic or he's the Lord. Because no one would make those claims unless they were true. And then he proved that they were true. And now it's up to you. You have to make a choice. If you have, then keep digging. Then keep learning. Then keep studying. Then keep growing in your relationship with him. If you haven't, I want to talk to you. I want to introduce you to that Messiah and say the paradox comes around and it's there for you to believe and accept. If you would, we're going to do this now. We're going to prepare our hearts for a time to remember what Jesus actually did for us. The crucifixion, his giving of his life, the sacrifice that he made for us. So if you would, let's stand together. Let's sing as we prepare for a time to remember him.